We've been talking about these fundamental truths for the last several weeks. And in our discussion, we have noticed that there are three primary pillars that do, in fact, undergird everything that we believe. The first of those is the existence of God. And there are a variety of reasons that support our belief in the fact that there is a God. We could talk about cause and effect, that every effect must have an adequate cause. We could talk about the idea of objective moral behavior. If there are actions that are always wrong under every circumstance, there must be an objective lawgiver who provides those laws. Then, of course, in addition to the pillar of God's existence, we have the pillar of Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Son of God. And we know that Jesus was a real historical character because of the testimony of both friends and foes. And in addition to being able to establish the reality of a man named Jesus of Nazareth, we can examine various statements that he made that indicate that he's surely more than just a man. And then we can place those statements that he made alongside his actions and ask, do his actions substantiate the claims that he made? And of course, the miracles that he performed and the life that he lived and the reaction of those who followed him do indeed substantiate those claims. The third of the pillars that we began looking at last time is the pillar of the inspiration of Scripture. Is the Bible really God's Word? Is it more than just a book that is filled with various human truths? Is it actually what it claims to be? As we concluded last time, there were a couple of verses that became very important in this discussion. Briefly, let's mention those again before we move forward. Look at your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Second Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. The text says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the context of 2 Timothy chapter 3, it becomes very clear that the term Scripture is used to refer to the Old Testament Scripture that Timothy had known from his childhood. However, when we look closer at the New Testament, we find out that there are instances in the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 5, for example, also 2 Peter chapter 3, where the term Scripture is applied to the words of Jesus in 2 Timothy 5, or 1 Timothy 5, and also to the words or the writings of the Apostle Paul in 2 Peter chapter 3. And so the term Scripture can have reference to either Old Testament writing or New Testament writing. But what is especially important here in this passage is the admonition that Paul gives when he says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. The term inspiration comes from the Greek, which means God breathed. 
It is the idea that Scripture flows from God, that those who have written Scripture have written exactly what God wanted them to write and all of what God wanted them to write. And that concept isn't just found here in 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's found elsewhere as well. The other passage that we had talked about before we concluded was in 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. And let's notice how that passage concludes beginning in verse 19. Peter has just talked about how he was a witness to the transfiguration of Jesus. This was not a cunningly devised fable. It's not a story that was passed on from one generation to another. That he actually saw what took place on that mountain. And he goes on to draw this conclusion in verse 19. He says, And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you would do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation or any private origination, any private source. That's the idea. For prophecy never came by the will of man. Watch this now. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. What is involved? in the inspiration process. Before we can really talk about this very significant pillar of our faith, this fundamental truth, the inspiration of Scripture, we have to at least get somewhat clear on what inspiration actually is. And in many ways, that's not necessarily an easy task. A couple of quotations that perhaps might be helpful for you, whether you can read them or not. Wayne Jackson in his book, Biblical Words and Theological Terms Made Easy, said this about inspiration. He said, Inspiration cannot be explained precisely in a manner that human understanding can fathom completely. Now let me stop before we move further into his definition. This is what he means. We have great difficulty defining exactly what we think inspiration involved. Does it mean that God takes over the mind or the Holy Spirit of God takes over the mind of the author so that the author has no freedom of will? Well, we know that the writers of Scripture didn't necessarily become typewriters of sorts because they maintained their vocabulary. When Luke, for example, wrote about the eye of the needle... He did not use the common term for needle that was present in his day. He used a term that a physician would be familiar with. He doesn't use the same word that the other gospel writers do. So they maintained their vocabulary. They talked about the things that they were aware of. Now, Brother Jackson goes on to say, In some fashion, God was able to use certain men preserving their personal literary abilities and traits. Another point it's very important. Just as we learn to read in the English language by reading on a lower grade level at first and then a higher grade level as we progress, if you were going to learn to read the Greek language, you would do the same thing. And it's actually very interesting to study the differences between the types of the vocabulary that's used, for example, in various books in the New Testament, and even the, the sentence structure. And if you took a beginning level Greek course 
I can just about guarantee that the very first book that you would start reading from in the New Testament would be the book of 1 John. You would not start reading Hebrews. And the reason you would not start reading Hebrews, or that you would not start reading Luke, or that you would not start reading Acts, is because the books of Hebrews and Luke and Acts contain some of the most complex writing in the Greek language that we have in Scripture. Whereas the book of 1 John, in comparison to those other three books, is relatively simplistic. And so the Holy Spirit inspired all of the authors of the New Testament, but He did not remove their own literary abilities. He did not remove their own literary styles. They had freedom to use the ability that they had, and it makes sense to us because John's profession was that of a fisherman, whereas Luke was a trained physician. And perhaps the author of Hebrews even more so in an eloquent style. And so it's very significant to note what's being said. He goes on to say, yet this process, overseeing the process so that the exact will of the divine mind was conveyed through the human instrument. And then he cites 1 Corinthians 2, verses 11 and following. God has revealed those things that He has prepared to us through the Holy Spirit. That's what inspiration is about. Inspiration enables the biblical writer to write exactly what needs to be said, all of what needs to be said, without any error and without any need for any addition. Now, another definition that might perhaps take this concept a bit further was written by Keith Mosier Sr. in his book, The Book God Breathed. This is what he said. The product of the inspiration process is revelation that is completely free from error. The term inerrancy is often used. He says, inspiration, which is the act of God, uncovered or revealed truth for man. God inspired, man wrote. The result of this process is the verbal, and that has reference to the words, the plenary, that's a term that has reference to the breadth of the work, every single word, the inerrant, the errorless writings are from God, which is the Bible. That's the point. When we talk about biblical inspiration, we're not just talking about someone who sat down and decided he wanted to write a letter to the church and thought for a few moments and said, you know, I've got a good idea about the things that I want to write about. It's not talking about you sitting down and thinking, you know, I'm going to write an essay today. What should I write about? And then maybe you have a good idea and you sit down and you write very rapidly. That's not the same sort of inspiration that we're talking about when it comes to the biblical process. We're talking about authors who are able to write every single word that God intended for them to write. And by the way, every single word matters, doesn't it? There are arguments to be made in Scripture on the either singularity of a word or the plurality of a word. Paul does that in Galatians chapter 3. He did not say unto seeds, but unto seed. That's the idea. 
Even one letter makes a difference. And so inspiration was such that individuals wrote exactly what needed to be said, the verbal inspiration. They wrote all of what needed to be said, every single word God intended, in an inerrant, that is a perfect and authoritative manner. That's the idea of inspiration when we read what Paul is saying in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That's the concept that we're thinking about. Now, the issue then becomes, as it was with regard to the claims of Jesus, how do we prove this? It's obviously one thing for the Bible to claim that it is inspired by God. To claim that every single word is true, that all the words that were needed were written, that we have everything that we need for life and godliness. But it's altogether another thing to prove that. Well, when we were talking about proving the identity and the claims of Jesus, we could rely upon the miracles that He performed. How would we go about proving the claims of Scripture? Well, I would suggest to you that there are actually several different ways that we might go about answering the question, how do we know that we can trust the Bible? So, how do we know that? How is it possible for us to know that we can trust the Bible? Well, I believe the following ways can be utilized to increase our confidence, to increase our faith. We can examine the Bible, for example, from the aspect of its accuracy. And that actually is a very broad discussion. We can ask, for instance, are the prophecies that are written hundreds of years apart accurate? We can ask, are the historical records that we find in Scripture accurate? Now, that to us in our day and age doesn't seem to be quite such a difficult thing to do. If you don't know a fact, I'm pretty sure exactly what you do when you can't think of something or what you don't do if you're not quite sure. You probably get on the internet and you probably look it up. Isn't it amazing that the authors of the Bible didn't have the ability to fact check the things that they were writing? The various historical records, and yet those historical records are found to be consistently true through the various archaeological discoveries and the written records of history that we possess. So accuracy is going to be very significant. Whether we're talking about accuracy with regard to biblical prophecy or to historical accounts or to geographical descriptions or even to scientific statements that were actually revealed quite a long time before man ever quote-unquote discovered them. And we'll walk our way through several of those here as we continue this study. I would add that the unity of Scripture is an important component of proving the claims that are made. How the Bible was written across 1,500 plus years. Moses lived approximately 1,400 years before the birth of Christ. John the Apostle perhaps finished Revelation around A.D. 100 or at least in the 90s, uh, if you take the late date of that book. And you've got about 1,500 years that span the beginning of Scripture with the book of Genesis, or at least when Moses wrote Genesis. 
and the end of Scripture when John lays down the pen of inspiration when Revelation is finished. And yet, when you read from the beginning of the book of Genesis all the way to the end of the book of Revelation, you find a cohesive story. There is the description, even in promise, of the one who would bruise the head of Satan in the book of Genesis. And you find that taking place, where the lion who is a lamb conquering the serpent of old in the book of Revelation. You find at the beginning of the book of Genesis, the tree of life. You find at the end of the book of Revelation, the tree of life. Although they're separated by 1,500 years in chronology, there is a cohesiveness to the unity of Scripture. That's a proof that it's beyond man's capacity to produce. The quality of writing also bears an investigation, and we'll make some points about that as time allows, eventually. And then, of course, the relevance. How is it possible that a book, some of which was written thousands of years prior to our existence, has such bearing upon the very moments that we find ourselves in today? It's been interesting to me, especially through the turmoil of this year, how many times the pre-planned studies that we have engaged in each month, the different books that we have been reading, have been completely relevant to the moments in which we found ourselves. That's not by accident. It's not by chance. God knew exactly what He was doing when He inspired Scripture so that the relevance of His Word continues to hold even in the circumstances that we face currently and in circumstances that are yet to come. That's how it is capable of providing for humanity all things that pertain to life and godliness. That wasn't just the life and godliness of those who lived in the first century. It was for the life and godliness of those who would come after. And we're included in that number. So we're going to attempt to walk through how we would prove the inspiration of Scripture. One of the ways, perhaps a primary way that individuals would seek to prove the inspiration of Scripture is by looking at the accuracy of fulfilled prophecies. Some of these will be very familiar. We won't take the time to read them all. But I will point you to several that we find. You might recall that in Isaiah the 7th chapter, in the 14th verse, some 700 years before Jesus was born, that the prophet wrote, How the virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, for he shall save his people from their sins. The fulfillment of that prophecy is found in the birth of Jesus, and we know this because Matthew tells us that that is the case. That this is going to happen to fulfill what was written by Isaiah the prophet, and then quotes from Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. The prophet Micah, who was a contemporary of Isaiah wrote in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 about the one who would be born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Though that city was little among the nations, out of it shall come forth the one who is everlasting. That, of course, also was a prophecy that was well known in the first century. And interestingly, when individuals were looking for where the Messiah would be born, it was brought up by individuals who knew that Bethlehem was supposedly the place. The prophecies that we read about in the Old Testament are proven true in the New Testament. In every single case, without exception. 
Uh, look, for example, to Zechariah chapter 11. Perhaps not as well known as the virgin birth or as the origination of the birth of the Messiah. But notice what Zechariah says, chapter 11, beginning in verse 12. Then I said to them, If it is agreeable to you, give me my wages. And if not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. Now if we stop and only read verse 12, someone might say that there are some logical explanations for someone asking for wages and being given 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver was the payment that was to be made in the death of a common slave. And so one could argue that perhaps there was some sort of arrangement and that conversation had taken place and someone had asked for payment and they said, okay, here are your wages, 30 pieces of silver. But the prophecy from Zechariah does not stop at that juncture. Notice what verse 13 goes on to say. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. That princely price they set on me. So I took the thirty pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. It's at that juncture that the prophecy becomes much more specific. Not only was there a bargaining for an amount or a sum of money, which ended up being thirty pieces of silver, but eventually that sum of money that was granted was taken and it was thrown back into the house of the Lord for the potter. If you recall the behavior of Judas Iscariot following his betrayal of Jesus, you know that in a moment of remorse, he took the 30 pieces of silver that he had been given back into the temple, and he threw it, and instead of taking it back into their treasury, they used it to buy what they called the potter's field. How did Zechariah, who lived 450 years before these events took place, know exactly what would happen? The only way was through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The same thing, of course, could be said of Isaiah the 53rd chapter in talking about the suffering servant of the Lord who would be led as a sheep before his shears is silent and open not his mouth. The one who would bear the sins of humanity. We read that today and it seems as if we're standing right beside the cross of Jesus Christ. When the Ethiopian eunuch was reading from that passage, he asked Philip, who does this man speaking about, of himself or of some other? And Philip opened his Bible and began speaking to him about Jesus. Fulfilled prophecy serves to confirm the accuracy of Scripture. But in addition to fulfilled prophecy, there are other things that are clearly accurate. We could mention briefly scientific foreknowledge. You're well aware of all of the aspects of Genesis, the first chapter. In the beginning time, God, this power, created force, the heavens, space, the earth. God is the one who created all of these magnificent aspects of what we know to be necessary are found even in that simple passage. 
In Isaiah the 40th chapter, you find another statement that perhaps might be interesting. The prophet in that text writes, Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 22, these words. He says, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Isaiah was writing to describe the world in which we live, referencing the circle of the earth. He wasn't trying to give a scientific statement in that passage, simply reporting that God is above us, God is beyond us, and yet the way that he describes God in the text is accurate. Long before man ever circumnavigated the globe, Isaiah has described the earth as a circle and God as separate from it. Job mentioned how the earth is hung upon nothing. Uh, there were many years in days gone by when individuals had the idea that the earth sat on the back of a giant tortoise. Uh, there were other ideas of how the earth had its standing. And yet Scripture accurately described such many, many years before. Psalm 8, however, is one of my favorites. It is, of course, a beautiful psalm to begin with. But there's a statement that's found in Psalm 8 that's truly remarkable and really a story that coincides with it. There's a man who was named Matthew Fontaine Murray. Mr. Murray was at one time sick and near death. And his son had come to sit beside his bed during this trying period. The son asked him if there was anything that he could do for him during that period of difficulty, and Mr. Murray requested that he read to him from his favorite passage of Scripture, which was the 8th Psalm. And so his son began to read from him from Psalm 8, and when you come down to verse 6, Psalm 8 says, You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas." When his son read those words, Mr. Murray asked him to repeat that section. He read them again. And when he read about the fish that passed through the paths of the seas, Mr. Murray said, the Bible says that there are paths in the sea. And if God will let me live, I will find them. The reason Matthew Fontaine Murray is known today is because of his efforts to chart the paths that pass through the seas. As a matter of fact, he is known as the pathfinder of the trade routes that we still use even to this day. Now, bear in mind that the Bible is not a scientific textbook. It was never intended to be. And yet, when the Bible speaks about a matter, it speaks accurately. The accuracy that we find in Scripture about a variety of subjects, more than just the ones that we have mentioned, is indeed tremendous. And so we have accuracy with regard to fulfilled prophecy. We have accuracy with regard to scientific statements. Even accuracy with regard to archaeological discoveries. We'll end by mentioning these two this evening. One of the things that critics of the Bible made fun of for many, many years, was the mention of the land of Goshen in the Exodus account. 
There had been no discovery of that name in any written source, no discovery of that land in Egypt in any verifiable document until the archaeologists uncovered a great deal of material that not only mentioned Goshen, but also found the various buildings that occurred in the time of the Pharaoh Ramses, some of which were made with brick that included straw, and some of which that were made of brick that did not include straw, all of which coincides with the biblical record of that event. And then, of course, there is the mention of the Hittite nation that is found in various places in the Old Testament. Perhaps the most familiar of those is in the story of David and Bathsheba and Bathsheba's husband Uriah, who is described as the Hittite. And critics of Scripture denounce the idea that there was ever such a thing as a Hittite nation until the archaeologists uncovered the city of Hachusas, which was discovered to be the capital of the Hittite nation. And so when the Bible speaks, it speaks accurately, even if we have not yet discovered verifiable sources that can confirm such to be the case. And so I would suggest to you that the inspiration of the Bible is supported by the concept of accuracy. Whether we're talking about accuracy in a prophetic sense or accuracy in a geographical or a historical sense, or accuracy with regard to various archaeological discoveries. And we'll talk a little bit more about accuracy next time before we move on into some of these other proofs for the inspiration of Scripture.